America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited for a first-time guest today, which is kind of shocking, given my philosophical and professional commitments, but um, uh, we live in nothing if not a world of magic and wonder. Robbie George, um, which in my small milieu, whenever I say, hey, I'm going to have, if I say I'm going to have Robbie George on, on The Remnant, what should we talk about? What should I ask him about? The first question I'll get from people is, Black Robbie George or Princeton Robbie George? And <laughs> um, this is Princeton Robbie George, Robert A. George, who's also a dear old friend of mine. Um, uh, I always tell people the A stands for apostate ever since he wrote this cover story for the New Republic in 2004, endorsing John Kerry for president. Um, Robert P. George is uh, a Princeton guy. He's the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He studies more on political philosophy, constitutional law, civil liberties, bioethics, philosophy of law. Um, he's also a non-resident fellow at AEI, my, my, my home away from home. Um, and he visits Harvard Law School as a professor and all that stuff. And he's written or edited a whole bunch of books. You may may know him as the reasonable guy who goes on tour from time to time with Cornell West. So with that, Robbie George, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. It's a real honor to be uh, on the show. Can I tell you my Robert A. George story? Sure. Robert A. is a good friend of mine uh, as well. Uh, as you know, he's a comedian as well. And uh, I, I try to be, but I'm not. But I sometimes uh, get in touch with him and say, Robert, can you remind me which one of us I am? <laughs> uh, and for years, since we wrote for the same journals and we, we appeared on the same pod, podcasts and sometimes broadcasts and things, um, although this was before the era of, broad, of podcasts, so I should, guess I should say radio shows. In any case, uh, I noticed a pattern. Uh, I was getting his hate mail and he was mm. getting my checks. <laughs> I don't know how that happened or why that happened, but uh, my assumption on the checks is that A comes before P in the alphabet. And so the accounting office would say, oh, I need a check for Robert George. They'd run down the ledger. There would be Robert A. George and he'd get my check. But he was, a, that's how honest he is. He, 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 would, uh, he would send me the check. Oh, that's great. I, mean, I uh, for years, whenever Jeff Goldberg from the Atlantic oh, would yeah. go on TV, I would get his anti-Semitic email. Um, and, and he would get mine. And, um, and in fact, I once picked up a prescription for him at my doctor and I had to turn around and say, I don't think this is for me. And, um, yeah, no, huge HIPAA violation. But I, uh, 
I would love to get some of Jeffrey Goldberg's checks, but that is not as, <laughs> yet, as of yet happened. Um, all right, so, I mean, obviously, I did not have you on here primarily to talk uh, political, presidential punditry and whatnot, but since I brought up Cornell West, I just, I, I assume you're not going to be working for the campaign, Cornell West running on the Green Party ticket. Well, people ask me sometimes whether I'm going to be his running mate as as vice presidential candidate, <laughs> and I say no. I'm I'm going to be Secretary of Love in the Cornell West administration. I've already committed to uh, to that. Uh, <laughs> but it's fascinating uh, to see Brother Cornell um, in action, campaigning for uh, president. I have said to a number of audiences, um, you know, I, I'm not going to sink my dear brother's campaign by. Uh, especially with his progressive base by endorsing him. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I've already endorsed Ron DeSantis. Uh, but, um, but I do endorse his honesty. I do endorse his integrity. And I do endorse his genuine compassion and, and love of people. We may disagree about a lot of uh, means, but we agree on some very important ends. Uh, we need to be about the business of combating poverty. We need to straighten a lot of things out in this, uh, in this country. Um, so I'm glad he's I'm glad he's in the race, and and I would just love to see him in a debate, especially if it comes down to the choices of of Biden and and Trump, which it's increasingly looking like doing. I'd like to see him in the debate, really holding those other two candidates' feet to the fire and putting some issues on the table and and demonstrating some real honesty. I'd like to see a debate, a Democratic debate with. Well, I guess he's not running as a Democrat, so that wouldn't no, work. But like that's right. But uh, Cornell West, uh, Joe Biden. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be a box office. <laughs> we can put it that way. Yeah. So I did not realize that you do uh, presidential endorsements. Do you want to make your case for, for, for Ron DeSantis? And how do you think? And again, I promise we're not going to do well on this, but I'm just kind of curious. I didn't know you did that. Uh, what, what, is, what is your affirmative uh, case for, for Ron DeSantis? And how do, you, how do you think he's doing? We're recording this for listeners' sake. Um, the morning of the day of the first presidential debate. So if things go wild tonight, don't hold it against us because we didn't know about it yet. Well, his campaign is not going well. Uh, his um, standing in the polls has, has dropped on a pretty, in a pretty consistent way over the past uh, weeks and months. So I'm disappointed in that. My, my case for him and the reason that I did and do endorse him is that he did a very good job running a large and challenging state as, as governor. Uh, I think most of the uh, policies that he uh, persuaded the legislature to enact and then uh, implemented are good policies. I, I, I have some disagreements. Anybody would. Um, but uh, on the whole, uh, I like what he's done. I especially admire his standing up uh, to Disney, for example. Uh, you know, a lot of Republicans tend to cave uh, to big business interests. We've seen this in Indiana when Governor Pence was governor. We've seen it in Arkansas with Governor Hutchinson. We saw it in, uh, even in South Dakota with Governor uh, Nome. But um, Governor DeSantis stood up to them. So that's on the, on the policy side. Uh, on the politics side, Florida was until yesterday a very, very purple state. Um, he won election as governor by a whisker, by the slimmest of possible margins. Uh, and then he's reelected in a 60-40, almost 60-40 landslide. He turns a, a purple state bright red. Uh, and that was in an election, the 22 election, 
in which the Republicans did not do well, certainly did not do anything like as well as they were expected to do, except in Florida with Ron DeSantis. So maybe this is a good way to sort of segue into state of university stuff in general. I would be perfectly, I've said this for a long time, be perfectly happy. I'm, I'm basically an anybody but Trump for the nominee guy, although Vivek Ramaswamy is testing me. Um, I, 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 I now think he's, Ramaswamy is basically unfit and unserious for the job, but um, I would still rather see him nominated and lose than see Trump nominated and lose because the, the potential downside of Trump winning is so great for the country, but also for conservatism and the Republican Party. But I like the, what I think is, from what people tell me, is the real Ron DeSantis, which is basically a policy nerd. You know, he's never more comfortable than when he's sort of like reading briefing papers in academic journals about COVID or whatever. And I think the real Ron DeSantis is the guy who got that bridge open in three days. I think the sort of, not, I don't want to say fake Ron DeSantis, but the wrong aspect, the wrong facade, the minor facade that he made the major facade of Ron, De, Ron DeSantis is the anti-woke warrior guy based on a theory of the Republican electorate that you could carve out a, a lane. We shouldn't use the term lane anymore. Carve out a lane um, as sort of more Trump than Trump by sticking with policy and that the average Republican voter in Iowa and elsewhere was so sufficiently online and so Twitterized that they thought that some of these controversies that I, I may take a side on are just not, are, are a much bigger deal than they actual are, right? The magnifying glass of Twitter makes a lot of these, these sort of woke freak out controversies a bigger deal than they are in the, in the wider electorate or even the wider Republican electorate. And I think that theory, you know, led him to do his presidential announcement on Twitter, which was a bad idea, and um, led him to do some things vis-a-vis -vis Disney that I don't necessarily think are good policy. Um, and they didn't buy him what he thought they were going to buy him with the Republican electorate, at least not as of yet. And so I guess part of the question is, is I'm with you when it comes to universities and this sort of anti-free speech, the woke stuff, all the rest. But is it, is it the, the civilizational crisis that some people on the right seem to be deeply invested in, in making it actually, I mean, is it really that big a deal? I think it's a very big deal for universities and universities matter, but is it, you know, you have some people out there talking about it as, as if it is an existential struggle for the future of humanity rather than the latest incarnation of political correctness that needs to be fought intellectually, but we don't need to start demonizing people over. Now, I don't like demonizing people. I, I think we should engage people rather than uh, demonize them. Uh, that's a point that uh, brings Cornell and me together, Cornell West and, uh, and, and me together. Um, but I do think we need to engage on these uh, cultural issues. I think they are profoundly important. And uh, from the point of view of our uh, Republican civic order, uh, yeah, existential. If we allow our young people to be identitized, that is, bathed in identity politics in a way that causes them to think of themselves in tribal terms, that's potentially fatal for republicanism for the reasons articulated 
in Federalist 10 and, and other writings of our, of our founders. They could see this and they, and they were right and we're, we're, we're seeing some of the consequences of it now. Uh, same with the gender uh, issues, with issues of uh, gender ideology. Um, I, I think it's very dangerous if people are taught to think of themselves as either in the category of victim or in the category of victimizer, persecuted or persecuted. And if people build their identities around um, their sense of victimhood or grievance, those are potentially existential in a Republican um, civic, civic order. So I really do worry about that stuff. And I, and I do admire Governor DeSantis's willingness to fight on the issue, I, or set of issues. I think he's sincere, Jonah. I, I don't think uh, that he's faking it. Now, there is a side of him that I call the Mike Dukakis side. That's the policy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if <laughs> how many of our listeners are old enough to remember who Mike Dukakis was, uh, but but your little giggle uh, indicated that you know exactly what I'm saying here. He was a policy exactly, yeah. punkish guy, governor, a Democratic liberal governor of uh, Massachusetts uh, who uh, uh, notoriously uh, read... Um, books about uh, Swedish land use policy is his nighttime uh, reading. I, I think this, I think the Swedish land use policy book he actually brought to the beach. Oh, there you go. That was the original story. <laughs> I could be wrong, but that was my memory of it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Governor Santa DeSantis is interested in those, uh, those details of, uh, of, of policy. But I, I'll give you my reason for thinking it's he's he's sincere, and it's just based on my own assessment of the man from our our interaction. Shortly after he was elected governor, uh, he called me on the phone. I I didn't know him. I knew about his election. It was an interesting case, especially because it was so close. Um, he called me on the phone and said that uh, he had heard a lot about uh, the James Madison program at Princeton, which, as you know, I established in the year. 2000, and it became very successful, um, and that he was uh, wondering whether I thought a program like the Madison program, a um, program in civic education modeled on the Madison program, could be made to work at state universities like the Florida universities, the University of Florida, Florida State, Florida Atlantic, Florida International, and so forth. And I said, well, Governor, I um, have spent my entire uh, life as a student and, and a faculty member in uh, private universities, so I don't have any direct experience with state universities, but I don't see any reason in principle why state universities could not have and maintain uh, flourishing programs like the Madison program. I'm sure there are some details that would have to be different. It, it's not just a template here. Um, but he said, well, okay, could I send a delegation up to Princeton to spend a couple of days at the Madison program looking it over I'd like them to talk to your faculty, to your students, people in the Princeton administration, uh, and report back to me on whether this is something we could try to do. And I said, well, we'd be delighted to welcome. He sent 11 people up, the presidents of three universities uh, uh, in the state system, uh, the commissioner of education, leaders from the uh, uh, state legislature, his own chief of staff. And we had two intense days of talking about how you might do something like this in, in Florida. And then they went away and I really wondered, gosh, will something come of this? This is pretty exciting. They seem pretty serious and Governor DeSantis seemed pretty serious. And sure enough, within a year, they were establishing programs uh, like the Madison program in the, in the Florida universities. And after a 
those programs had been up and running for a couple of years, he invited me to come down and uh, do a press conference with him at the governor's mansion and to talk about education reform and programs like uh, ours and his. Uh, so I, I was able to go down, uh, meet him in person, uh, meet his family and his wife and his little kids uh, at the governor's mansion, uh, interact with other Florida officials. We did have that press conference. You can watch it. You can watch it on uh, online. And, you know, from the conversations I was able to have with him, I really formed the judgment. Now, maybe he's a really good actor and he fooled me, but I formed the judgment that he's very serious about this cultural stuff. He really believes in it. He doesn't want his kids to grow up in a woke world. He, he doesn't want that kind of indoctrination for his own children. And he doesn't want it for other people's children. Um, so I, I think there's this policy side. Then I think there's this moral and cultural side that he's, that he's serious about. From my point of view, the unfortunate thing is that the campaign's not working. It, it, right. You know, the Twitter rollout, as you say, turned out disastrously. Uh, nothing else seems to have uh, gone right. Uh, you know, whatever produced that 60-40 victory in Florida for re-election, that magic, is just not happening at the national level. Yeah, and just to sort of clarify and also get off of Ron DeSantis for a bit, but um, I don't think he's faking it. I think it's just a facade that he emphasized, right? And and it's, or a facet of his agenda that he emphasized on the theory that that's what would give him this comparative advantage against Trump and 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 rally the the GOP electorate to his cause, and I think it was a bad theory, just a, on a pure political strategy point. And I want to be clear: I'm not trying to trivialize the problem with identity politics. I did write a book called "Suicide of the West." Yeah, and yeah, I wrote a good book called "Liberal Fascism." <laughs> um, yeah, we can revisit that too. So the but my so I I am with you about the need and put DeSantis aside and let's start talking about the university stuff, right? So. One of the things I worry a lot about is, you know, you you guys who sit on rocks and think all day um, would call mimesis, right? Which is where more and more we see the right not rejecting the left's arguments, but offering sort of inverted mirror images of them, right? And so, so much of, and I, and I, I've often put this in terms of like, uh, in, in politics, Alinsky envy, where the left created this demonic version of what the left, the right created the demonic version of what the left was. And I'm not saying there aren't any demons on the left. I'm just saying the totality of the picture was this idea that they do, they will and do anything they can to seize power. They became convinced that they were all Alinskyites. And, at, and very quickly, that became rather than a criticism of the left, it became a point of envy for the right, where the right said, we have to be Alinskyites too. And now, if you look around the right, all of these young Republican organizations on college campuses, the various sort of MAGA-adjacent groups, the young Republicans in New York are, are just a mess. They have these, uh, you know, they have these commitment, these philosophical commitments to how conservatism has to be about winning by any means necessary. And that is basically taking your enemy, what you perceive to be your enemy's point of view, internalizing it and saying, we have to fight fire with fire. I see the same thing often with identity politics now, where um, we, the argument used to be identity politics is bad. And now the argument is 
we need our own identity politics. And so while I'm totally with you with the, with the necessity to, to fight identity politics, if the means of the fight end up spreading the contagion more than containing and killing it, maybe we got to come up with different ways of different kinds of arguments for how to fight it. And I'm just wondering what you think about that in the big picture. I want to say amen, brother. Um, uh, you're, you're preaching a gospel that I've been preaching now for several years because I noticed the same problem that you have noticed. Uh, those on the conservative side, sometimes uh, sounding like being like our adversaries, adopting their own form of identitarian uh, ideology, of identity politics. And it is toxic. It is toxic to this democratic republic. And, and the fact that the left is doing it is obviously no justification for the, the conservative side to do it. I mean, what your mother said is true. Everybody's mother, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. You know, identity, identitarian politics is wrong. It's toxic for democratic Republican regimes. And we need to avoid falling into it. As a matter of fact, Jonah, uh, just this morning on the day that we're recording this, I have a long Twitter thread, thread basically making the point you just, you just made. I, I want to lead uh, conservative young men and women away from that sort of campus identitarianism. Um, we, we, need to, um, we need to be willing to engage our friends on the other side using the proper currency of intellectual discourse. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a currency of intellectual discourse in the way there's an economic currency. It's pounds and pence in Britain. It's dollars and cents in the United States. The, the currency of intellectual discourse consists of reasons, evidence, and arguments. That's what we need to be doing and training our young people to do. Give reasons, martial evidence, advance arguments. The, uh, the identitarian path is, a, is it really a road to perdition. It'll, it'll ruin us. It'll ruin the country. And it's not, and it's, it's not just the identitarianism. It's also, you know, the critical theory stuff. You know, the, I, I've taken this sort of writing about critical Trump theory where time and again, when the system, whether it's the electoral college, whether it's, you know, elections in general, whether it's the criminal justice system, um, whether it's the, you know, the, the, the tort bar, whether it's journalism, whatever it is, if it proves inconvenient or, or critical of Donald Trump, then it's the argument immediately becomes this is proof of the system being corrupt, right? And while it doesn't have any of the fun jargon that I learned in college from, you know, uh, the critical race theorists and critical feminist theorists and all that, it's the structurally, it's the same argument, this privileging over feeling that if you have, if you feel like the system is unfair, that is enough. That is, that is enough of indictment. That is enough proof um, because the personal is political and all that stuff that I got drowned in in college is now taken to heart by vast swaths of the right. And I don't know, I am inclined to despair from time to time that it is not going to be extracted from the right anytime soon. And um, that's, I mean, that, that is my, my fundamental problem is like, I, I have become a both sidesist in ways that I would once have had such contempt for because I haven't given up my indictment of the left. But now that it's become a bipartisan problem, 
um, it's even more troublesome to me. Well, uh, please don't despair. Um, <laughs> all, all of us need to be in this fight and, and despair would, would take us off the field of battle. It's an important fight. It's an important fight for the future of the country. It's important for our children. And, and in my case, I'm a new grandfather for, for my, for my oh, grandchildren. Tough. So we're invested. We're invested in, in the future here. So we need, to, uh, we need to fight for it. You know, historians are fond of breaking up the epochs into the age of this and the age of that. So sometimes they'll refer to the medieval period as the age of faith. Now, that's, of course, an oversimplification. Uh, anybody who knows anything about Maimonides or Aquinas or Al-Farabi or Dante, uh, anybody who knows anything about the real Middle Ages uh, knows that it was an age of reason as well as an age of, uh, of faith, an age of learning. But there's some truth to it. It's an oversimplification, but there's some truth. I mean, the ultimate criterion of the touchstone of rightness, of goodness, of justice uh, for the medievals was conformity with the faith, with biblical faith. And historians will sometimes refer to the Enlightenment then as the age of reason or the age of science. And again, it's an oversimplification. The, uh, there were many different Enlightenments. Uh, some were actually, or at least some elements of some, were genuinely hostile to religion, especially in the case mm -hmm. of the French. But there are many Enlightenment figures who were devoutly religious. They saw no conflict between uh, faith and, and, and reason. So it's an oversimplification to simply call it the age of reason as if faith's not part of the picture. But it still captures a certain truth that, you know, for the Enlightenment people, the, um, the touchstone, the criterion of, of goodness and right, truth, justice, uh, is conformity with reason. Well, if the medieval period was the age of faith and the Enlightenment was the age of reason, what's our age? How would we characterize the age in which we live? And my fear is that it's all too accurate to describe our age as the age of feeling. Mm -hmm. So what for people in our time and not just those on the left, Jonah, as you say, including increasingly those on the conservative side, what's the touchstone of goodness, justice, truth, right? It's feeling, how you feel about something. Now, let me tell you something. Feelings are extremely unreliable. The, the great teachers of humanity from Plato to Augustine to my late dear beloved friend, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the people who really have the drop on things, have understood from the beginning, feelings are unreliable. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to have feelings. That doesn't mean that we should try to wipe out our emotions. I'm not arguing for a kind of radical stoicism or Theravada Buddhist view of things, although I have great respect for the stoic and Buddhist uh, traditions. I'm not arguing for the elimination of emotion or feeling. But feelings got to be under the control of something higher and better and more reliable. So I'd like to get us back into a situation where, you know, faith and reason, which I regard as harmonious, are, are governing feeling, emotion, desire. That, that's basically Plato's argument, that, that in the well-ordered soul, yeah, there's an appetitive aspect, but the appetitive is under the guidance, under the control of 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 reason, of the, of the more reliable faculty. Look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic, sympathetic. In my last book, I, I basically make the argument that, that the Romantic era never actually ended. It may have gone into remission a little bit from time to time, but um, the primacy of feelings, which was really what the original Romantics were all about, is this rebellion against the iron cage of reason 
um, uh, which you saw, and I'm also kudos to you because you made enlightenment plural, which is, you know, as both of us, as, as longtime fans of, of, of Gertrude Himmelfarb, um, it is, it is a rule, you know, you get, you get 10 points off your test if you don't pluralize enlightenments because there were some good enlightenments and some, there were less than good enlightenments. And, um, the German Enlightenment, which I don't think gets nearly enough grief, you know, was a rebellion against the more rigorous strictures of, of, of the age of reason that were imported or, or imposed from France. And with it, that's where you get romantic nationalism, which is what they used to call just plain nationalism was romantic nationalism. And you get this idea of the primacy of feelings, the primacy of that you're, you are your own priest. Um, and I agree with you that this is a natural human tendency that, oh, if you get, but certain philosophers and certain intellectuals and certain public figures at various times in history, give the people permission structure that lets them lean into this idea that their gut is the highest arbiter of moral truth. And that's the age that we live in now. And it's, it is I'm not sure the democracy can live side by side with it in a healthy way if there's not a correction. And I'm not trying to, I'm the one who has started this conversation weirdly by trying to downplay the woke stuff. So I'm not trying to be full of um, apocalyptic talk here. The thing I'm trying to calibrate for myself and I'm trying to get your guidance on is there's a side of me, the small C conservative side of me says, there's nothing new under the sun. We have had dumb fads before in American life. And if you were an academic, at, if you were a Robbie George of in the 1960s with Herbert Marcuse and these Frankfurt school jackasses going around talking about all of this stuff, you, would, you could say, oh my gosh, this is the end of civilization. Or you could say this too shall pass. And I grew up during the political correctness wars, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. And a lot of the woke stuff strikes me as just a rebranding effort of the same arguments with some variations at the margins. And so I go back and forth about whether this is an internal struggle and there's always going to be a problem with romanticism and identity politics, or is this a new and singular important threat that needs new and singular important means to fight it? And that, I think, is a fraught way of framing things because when people claim that some there's a new threat it says well that gives me permission to use new means to fight it because the old means of argument and persuasion are no longer adequate to the task and i hear that a lot from people on the right that these times require breaking all the rules and i'm a rules guy at this point and i think no it's the same thing as always have the arguments fight for these institutions and i want to get to what you're doing to fight for these institutions because that gets an important story um, but I'm just, that's, that's what I'm trying to calibrate is, is between apocalypticism and meh, this will pass. These, this happens with every generation. Well, it's very difficult to make good judgments, uh, in this area. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're fallible across the board. We can make bad judgments in all sorts of areas, but in this particular area, the questions are really difficult. What am I actually seeing? Uh, am I seeing just a blip or am I seeing the end of civilization? We know there's some bad stuff going on, but can we take the this too will pass attitude or do we need to treat this as an existential threat? Now, treating it as an existential threat doesn't mean that we are licensed 
to use any means to meet the threat. Uh, we, we can make ourselves into monsters if we, if we take that uh, attitude. But it's a difficult judgment. Um, the Enlightenment, the worst figures, some of the worst figures or the most unfortunate figures uh, of the Enlightenment were Enlightenment figures who tended to treat reason, uh, reduce reason really to a sort of form of calculation. So reason became a calculating machine or you know, what we would later know as computers. Uh, they abandoned the older and richer conception of reason that really goes all the way back to the to the to the Greeks, um, especially uh, described well, I think, by by Aristotle, which is more than just a uh, uh, a calculating machine. It's it's a faculty that uh, makes possible wisdom, and, and not just uh, uh, addition and subtraction and multiplication and uh, and division. And I think this caused some of the romantic reaction. Uh, to the Enlightenment, the prioritizing of feeling over reason, because the sense of what reason was had been so uh, diminished, evacuated of uh, of, it, of its content. Uh, even moral morality's or I'm sorry, reason's capacity to make moral judgments. Uh, moral judgments are anything more than calculations. Uh, has eroded uh, by the point at which the romantic figures begin to really become prominent. But I, I wonder, Jonah, if you are familiar with Heinrich Heine, the great German-Jewish uh, poet of the 19th century. Heine's prophecy, his prediction in 1834 of the rise of the Nazis. I know, I, I know. I, mean, I covered a lot of this stuff reading when I was doing liberal fascism, but it's been a while, yeah. Yeah, so, so Heine's writing in 1834. It's 100 years, based, almost 100 years before Hitler comes to power in Germany. Uh, but it's at the point at which German philosophy is going in a sure. certain direction. Uh, so um, Heine says, Christianity, and this is its greatest merit, he, he says, has somewhat subdued the brutal German love of war but it has not destroyed it. And when what Heine calls that subduing talisman, the cross, that is Christianity, falls, which it will, and he's, he's talking here under the pressures of German romantic thought, then the stony gods of the German past will rise from their tombs and rub the debris of a thousand years from their eyes. And Thor, with his giant hammer, will jump up and smash the cathedrals. And then he says, don't smile at me, a dreamer who warns you of the consequences of the philosophy you are embracing now. It's romantic ideology. Don't laugh at me. For what happens in the visible first happens in the realm of the invisible. What happens in social life first happens in the realm of intellect or spirit, Geist in the German. And so he says, when you hear a crashing such as never been heard before, then you will know that the German thunderbolt has fallen and a play will be enacted in Germany that will make the bloodshed of the French Revolution look like an innocent idyll. That's a hundred years before Hitler. Heine was able to see what was coming in virtue of 
things that were happening in the intellect and in the, in the culture, in the realm of ideas. And ideas really do, as we were said, have consequences. Sometimes it's decades, sometimes it's centuries, but they do have consequences. Now, his judgment turned out to be accurate, but even he at the time includes, as I quoted him including, this admonition, don't laugh at me, don't smile at me, don't think I'm exaggerating, don't think I'm a nut. And boy, he turned out to be dead on. And of course, he didn't know there would be a guy named Hitler who had a funny mustache. He didn't know that there would be a party called the Nazi party, but he knew that there would be an act at a play in Germany that would make all the bloodshed of the French Revolution look like an innocent ideal. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, the, I, I never thought that Julian Benda got the credit that he was due, um, in part because it is such a polemic, but the treason of the, treason of the clerks or treason of the intellectuals in English, um, which doesn't quite capture what, what treason of the clerks does, there is so much that describes our current time, right? Where he says politics has become essentially the organization of political hatreds. Um, where, and one of the things I learned from Benda when I was working on my first book was you can all, one of the great tells of how a political movement has been corrupted is when they start saying Jesus was the first X. So, the socialists all said, Jesus, Jesus was the first socialist. Jesus was the first environmentalist. Jesus was the first Aryan. Jesus was the first nationalist. Jesus was the first this, first that. Because what it, what it really is doing is subordinating Jesus to whatever the ism that you're promulgating at the moment, right? And it's not supposed to work that way. And I'm sure you're friends with Russell Moore, but, you know, Russell Moore has this just absolutely just depressing anecdote about how many pastors have come to him to say that when he says, when he invokes straight up, you know, uh, statements from Jesus, you know, you know, turn the other cheek, where people will come up to him and say, you sure you shouldn't peddle that liberal stuff here. And he says, well, I'm actually just quoting Jesus directly. And they say, yeah, well, that worked for, and he says that kind of thing would happen in the past. But when you would correct them and point out that I was actually, you know, quoting Jesus, they would, in the past, they would say, oh, I guess I got to work on my biblical literacy, or of course I wasn't thinking that kind of thing. And now they'll say, oh, sure, that worked for Jesus when he was living in a neutral, in a neutral culture. (laughs) The culture that crucified him. Uh, (laughs) It was the neutral culture, but today you can't turn the other cheek. And that's the kind of, you know, uh, the kind of warping that you get when, when you make yourself the primary measure, your feelings, the primary measure of everything external to you, then when you get inconvenient information or inconvenient advice, if it conflicts with yourself, you bend the whole thing to fit your worldview. And I think that that's, that's something that we used to be so good at condemning on the left. And now it makes you know, people like me, you know, some sort of, you know, cuck rhino for saying it's bad when the right does it too. And, um, and I don't know that the, I mean, I'm curious what you think, you know, we both believe we're, we're Richard Weaver guys, you know, I mean, Richard Weaver had some things we probably both disagreed with profoundly, but, but the ideas have consequences, consequences, you know, or as George Will likes to say, small ideologically committed minorities, you know, drive history. And I think we both agree with that. At the same time, 
it is less less and less obvious to me that these problems that you can do this straight as intellectual intellectual history buffs love to do this let's let's do the bagats let's you know trace these ideas back and then say aha we can go back as far as rousseau so all of this comes from rousseau i'm not sure all of it comes from rousseau anymore i think rousseau gave it articulated a lot of these things that gave intellectuals some labels to apply to these phenomenon. But I think a lot of this stuff actually drives from the human heart. And I'm just kind of like, you agree with me that there's identitarianism on the right. Do you think it's comes from, if it can't, if we can't beat them, join them. And then you can trace it back to intellectuals or is there something larger, some larger historical force at work or forces at work that is driving this stuff? Well, of course, once you try to trace the origins of anything, back, right. you end up in the Garden of Eden and you end yeah, up with exactly. the fallenness of man <laughs> that, uh, you know, we're, uh, yeah, we're made in the image and likeness of God and that's great. We're God-like, uh, but we're also made from the mere dust of the earth and we're fallen and frail and, and fallible. And, you know, we don't, don't like to admit that we're wrong and we don't like other people challenging us, but it's worse today in an era of feeling or in an age of feeling, people will identify themselves with their feelings. So whether you're on the left or the right, you'll interpret any challenge, not as a good faith effort to get at the truth of things. You'll interpret it as a personal attack. Now, you do see this on the left all the time, right? If you challenge someone's ideas or their practices or lifestyle, uh, you will immediately be condemned as someone who wants to deny someone else's personhood or deny somebody else's humanity or deny that they exist or what have you. Now, of course, that's very silly. but People on the conservative side used to be content to say, that's very silly and I'm not playing by those rules. Now, too often, we just fall into the same thing. People on the conservative side will be offended that someone will challenge, from the left will challenge their beliefs or, or a fellow conservative will challenge some aspect of their beliefs. It's because they see the beliefs as tribal and personal, not as ideas that have got to be on the table for criticism, indeed for self-criticism. In a healthy society, not only intellectually and morally healthy society, not only would be, we be open to critique and criticism and would not interpret criticism as a personal attack, we would be our own best critics. Self-criticism would be valorized and, uh, and uh, held in, in high esteem, and a person would be um, commended uh, for having a self-critical uh, spirit. Uh, but that's not the age in, in which we live. You know, uh, Jonah, I can't help but tell this little story. What you were talking about, Russell uh, Moore's story about um, you know, challenging uh, pastors and other, other Christians with the words of Jesus, uh, but they don't recognize they're from the Bible. Uh, I sometimes have some fun, especially with our students, sometimes with my faculty colleagues as well, quoting from the <laughs> Bill of Rights. Do you agree with this? Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you tell me you're a great defender of freedom and human rights and civil rights and civil liberties and the Bill of Rights, but you don't want to go along with what's in the Bill of Rights, actually. And I don't mean just the Second Amendment, by the way. I mean, even, even today, you know, the free exercise of religion, uh, freedom of speech and so forth, you, you, you can't be you can't be confident that people will even think that's a good idea. I remember I was on the board of, I was the young trustee on the board of trustees for my alma mater. And um, the school, had the board had decided that they had to come up with a new, this was back when tolerance was the, you know, tolerance statements were the big thing, right? And, and they were explaining 
it's, again, this is 30 years ago now, right? There were, there were, some expert was explaining to us that tolerance is now sort of going by the wayside because tolerance sounds condescending. Um, it has to be some phrase like affirming or something like that because tolerance sounds sort of colonial. Like, oh, you have these interesting little customs, we'll tolerate them, but you're a nuisance, right? That was sort of the implication. And being a young Jonah Goldberg and quite a hothead, I thought this was all, to quote Aristophanes, bullshit. And um, I came up with, I said, you know, we should have some language in here that says the liberal arts, rightly understood, are not about intolerance. And that, that, that tolerance and open debate and all these things are implied in the whole concept of the liberal arts. And we shouldn't pretend that we need some new statements that correct for something that's already there or something like that. It was an argument 30 years ago. I just remember a very prominent left-wing Democratic lawyer who was on the board for real when I issued this letter and sent it to people, um, turned to me and said, I can't technically disagree with anything that's in this document, but what concerns me is that it is full of what are probably right-wing code words that um, will get us into trouble. And I was like, so like, which ones is it tolerance? Is it, is it f free speech? Is it, you know, open discourse? And, but back then that was the thing. It was like, the, there's the, the hackles go up. Like, oh, you can't actually mean what the Bill of Rights says. You have to mean this other thing that's unstated, that's hidden, you know? And it's, it's, it's it makes it very difficult to have these kinds of conversations. Can I go back to Florida for, for just a, just a moment? Um, you know, Governor DeSantis and the Florida legislature uh, have been working on some education uh, reform policies. And uh, you, you know about the, the takeover of the board of New College Florida and trying to remake that college, which had gone very wayward and was uh, declining in lots of, in lots of ways. Um, I, I think most of those, uh, most of what's uh, the content of those efforts is, is good, but there is one thing uh, that I think is bad, that I've criticized, that I've uh, advised people I know in Florida to, to not get behind. And, and that's the aspect of the so-called stop, stop Woke bill that would restrict or prohibit the teaching of what the bill calls divisive concepts. Uh, I think that's a mistake. That's an example of uh, falling into the trap of doing what your opponents are doing. Uh, the, the folks on the left want to ban certain sorts of teachings or certain sorts of ideas from the classroom. And we shouldn't be doing that, no matter how bad the ideas are. What we should be insisting on is something very different, and that is that the various competing points of view be represented in the discussion so that students are not indoctrinated. So my advice to the legislature in Florida and Governor DeSantis and anybody else who's interested in education reform is to build, don't ban. You don't need to ban anything. You don't need to ban ideas, again, no matter how bad they are. You just have to make sure that competing ideas have a place at the table. They can be advocated. And, and then, you know, students can decide for themselves on the basis of the strength of the arguments and the evidence presented and the the reasons that are adduced where the, where the truth is, where they think the truth is. That's, that's fine. That's what a liberal arts education really should be all about. So I want to switch gears a little bit, but this is a good segue for it. Um, you know, one of the reasons why, there are a lot of reasons why I wanted to 
start the dispatch. Um, but one of them was that many of my sort of intellectual heroes on the right were, were famous for their writings and their speeches and their general arguments and all that. But their lasting influence for a lot of them really had to do with the institutions they built behind the scenes. And before we started, because we're those kinds of people, we talked a lot about the public interest and Irving Kristol, um, which is a blessed memory. Um, basically, you know, there's this line in Adam Smith that says, uh, wherever people of the same trade gather for conviviality, uh, seldom will it not turn to a conspiracy against the public good. Prices will be fixed. <laughs> right. People like us, when we get together, uh, seldom will the conversation not turn to nostalgic talk of the public interest and yeah. Irving Crystal. Um, but, uh, and so Irving was a big institution builder. William F. Buckley was a huge institution builder. We, we only know of a few of them, you know, are common, are, we all know about National Review or maybe Firing Line, but, you know, there was ISI, there were all these things. And as, as important and as great as your teaching has been and as your writing has been and, what a, and the important role you play as a public intellectual and as a banjo player, the most remarkable thing, and I think it's a really important story to tell, because we constantly hear how conservatives never won anything. That's why we needed Trump. Conservatives are always losing. There's been no progress for conservatives, blah, 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 blah. You founded uh, the Madison Center at Princeton, and it has been wildly successful, even by, by the lights of its critics, um, uh, who may disagree with the contents of some of the stuff it does, but can't dispute that it's serious, rigorous, important, and successful, and totally in keeping with the high standards of Princeton. But it has become something of a model around the country for a way to sort of create schools within schools at a lot of big state schools that it's happening in Arizona and some other places. And so I'm just sort of wondering if you could, for the average listener who doesn't know any of that, if you could give sort of a 30,000 foot version of what that story is, what your philosophy was going in, how it's gone and that kind of thing. And then we can sort of take it from there. Uh, well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to, opportunity to talk about the, uh, the Madison program, Joan. Uh, it was founded in the year 2000. Um, I was the founder. It's been going for 23 years. I founded it because uh, it seemed to me that uh, we needed stronger offerings at Princeton uh, in the area of civic education. We had a pretty distinguished tradition of teaching in, and scholarship in this, uh, in this area. A long line of professors in the chair that I hold, the McCormick Professorship of Jurisprudence, who were, who were leaders in civic uh, education. The first, the first uh, McCormick professor was Woodrow Wilson, and then he was followed by Edward S. Corwin, then Alpheus T. Mason. Just for the record, this is a, this is a, I am the, I'm the international chairman, of, I'm the chairman of the International Society of Woodrow Wilson haters. So uh, I just, I, but go on, I apologize. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, we, we do have this, this strong uh, tradition, but um, I thought that we could build on it and should uh, build on it, especially to meet some of the uh, pretty distinctive challenges of our own time in the area of civic education. It's been such a loss of knowledge of how our republic is supposed to work, the, the mechanisms of the Constitution, the, the principles of our civic life. Um, so I was able, uh, able to do that, and the success of the, of, of the program came pretty quickly. And so the question presented itself to me and to many other people, can it be replicated elsewhere? And so clones or little uh, institutions modeled on the Madison program began popping up in interesting places. Um, often founded by um, former visitors who had spent a year with us in the Madison program as 
postdoctoral fellows or visiting fellows or, or what have you. Uh, so uh, Brad Thompson founded a center modeled on the Madison program at Clemson where, where he teaches. Um, uh, ben and Jenna Story founded a program at Furman, uh, the Tocqueville uh, program where he teaches. So, and they started popping up in, in various places. Um, some states got into the act. The folks out in Arizona founded the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State uh, University. Um, uh, I was uh, drafted to chair a committee for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to found a program called the Public Discourse uh, Program, which is now uh, up and running and I think is going to be very significantly expanded very soon. Um, there's now one uh, the, uh, at the University of no uh, Tennessee, the Knoxville flagship campus. And of course, uh, several in Florida now at state universities. Uh, the biggest one is the Hamilton Center, the Alexander Hamilton Center at, um, at the uh, University of, of Florida. I've also founded together uh, with my uh, co-conspirators, Luis Tellez, president of the Witherspoon Institute here in Princeton, and Charles Johnson, the uh, retired uh, former CEO of Franklin Templeton Mutual Funds, a foundation called the Foundation for Excellence in Higher Education, whose whole job is to create programs modeled on the Madison program, playing the role of the Madison program at leading universities uh, around the country and even beyond. We have we have one in Oxford, the program in law and constitutional government at Oxford University in England. But there are affiliates of our foundation, programs modeled on the Madison program, uh, being funded in part through our foundation at Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Chicago and Johns Hopkins and other uh, leading institutions. And uh, what we're doing is modeling for our universities what the whole university should be like. These are places where You've got to do business. The rules are you do business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse. It's reasons and arguments and evidence. Uh, I feel has no role in, in this. Uh, we don't know, want to know how you feel. We don't know why you think this is the case. What are your reasons? Do you have any arguments? Is there any, is there any evidence? And, you know, we, we have the strictest uh, rules about free speech. And that is you can advocate anything you want so long as you do it in the proper currency of intellectual discourse by giving reasons and making arguments. And we don't force you to argue on our terms or in our language. We, we, don't, we don't allow the game where you control the outcome of the debate by controlling the terms in which the debate is, is conducted. So what we want to do is show the rest of the university in every case that here's a model worth emulating. The whole university should be like this. The whole university should be a free speech zone. The whole university should be doing business in the proper currency of intellectual uh, discourse. And then um, I've uh, been involved in the founding of uh, some para-academic institutions, which I think are pretty important, um, uh, together with uh, some friends in Princeton. And then we were joined by some friends at other universities. We founded the Academic Freedom Alliance which is an alliance of professors across the ideological spectrum, on the left and on the right and on the center and, and unclassifiable, uh, who uphold the right of faculty members to advocate anything they want so long as, A, they uh, do business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse, and B, they don't indoctrinate their students or treat their students in a discriminatory or unfair uh, manner. And the Alliance will defend uh, any member of the Alliance, and sometimes we even defend people who aren't members of the Alliance, when the 
outrage mobs come after them and the cancellation campaigns occur, we'll even provide uh, legal legal support. Uh, I've been involved in establishing um, uh, fellowship and scholarship programs uh, to, to do what historically some of the great fellowship and scholarship programs did uh, to, to make uh, possible graduate education or postdoctoral fellowships uh, for outstanding people. Uh, but in so many cases, those fellowships have, for want of a better expression, gone woke and are excluding certain categories of people because they don't fit the bill now for political reasons or ideological uh, reasons. So we founded the Berry Scholarships to Oxford, modeled very much on the Rhodes uh, Scholarships. Uh, that program is now six years old and is absolutely uh, flourishing. Uh, the support for that was from uh, the philanthropist uh, John Berry and his wife uh, Daria in New York. We also have fellowships that they've funded, uh, postdoctoral fellowships uh, for outstanding uh, people across, again, across the political spectrum. There's no ideological litmus test uh, here. Uh, most recently, I've been involved in founding uh, a new academic academy, the American Academy of Sciences and Letters. It'll be having its launch event at the Library of Congress in November of, um, of this year. Uh, and it's meant to uh, acknowledge and uh, provide awards to, to celebrate outstanding achievement across the arts and sciences and, and in the learned profess, uh, professions without any ideological bias or without any thumb on the scales. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white, left or right, religious or non-religious, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, Hindu, Buddhist, that none of that matters. What matters is, is the work, outstanding work, making a genuine contribution to the sum of human knowledge. And if it is, then we want you in the academy. And if it's really outstanding at the very top, we're going to recognize it with prizes and awards. So those are the institutions I've been involved in building, and they're meant to respond to the challenges of our day, John. Yeah, so one of the points, I mean, first of all, thank you for all that. Um, and thank you for all you've done. Um, and listeners of this podcast know I don't say things like that very often. Um, but um, I think that, you know, part of the, this, an important distinction to be made, I was recently talking to uh, Daniel Hanan, Daniel Hannon, I can never remember how to pronounce his name properly, um, uh, about some of this. One of the things that marks our age is the, there's always been a tension between small C conservatism and big C conservatism and, and, this, and as defined as sort of the conservative temperament, conserv small C approach to, to, to life versus the big C ideological crusade kind of thing. And um, uh, obviously, I think both of us would agree there are places where the big C and the small C are complementary, um, but there are also places where they can be an intention. And I think one of the things that is great about the stuff that you're doing is that in one sense, it's not big C conservative at all. You're saying it's not ideological indoctrination. You can be from anywhere, make any arguments you want, as long as they're backed up by facts and evidence and, 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 and presented civilly. And I respect all that. But they are actually profoundly small C conservative in the sort of Hayekian sense that conservatives in America, rightly understood, are people who are defending the American Enlightenment and the American Enlightenment principles that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights and in the Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence. And you can be ideologically left wing and still want to defend those things um, because 
it has, it's about the kind of political order that you want to live in. And a good conservative, a good small C conservative wants to defend the things that make America, America, even if they disagree about tax rates and the role of the welfare state and all that kind of thing, defending, conserving, defending, preserving free speech, Bill of Rights is in a weird way. It's, it's, it's a small C defense of a very radical thing. And that's the point of a lot of civics education is to explain to people they need buy into that project. And so I, I, I also just think when you hear people say that there's been no progress on the right and that the, institute, that the universities are lost, um, how do you respond? Because, I mean, sort of your life's work, at least for the last couple of decades, is the opposite. Yeah, I just say, come visit us at the Madison program. Open invitation. Come visit. Look at what we do. 250 undergraduate fellows of the Madison program. They're not all conservative, um, which is great. You know, uh, some are on the left, some are on the conservative side. Now, of course, there are some students for whom the whole idea that a university is a place of learning is uh, so alien to their sensibilities that they wouldn't want to have anything to do with the Madison program. From their point of view, universities are all about advancing a political cause, social justice, or whatever they want to call it. But that's not the whole left. And so we've got students from the left are in the Madison program. Of course, we have a lot of conservative students who are in the Madison program. We have a lot of students who just haven't made up their minds about key things who are, who are uh, in the Madison program. Go to visit any of the other institutes that are modeled uh, on the Madison program. Go visit the wonderful, I mentioned it earlier, School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership out at uh, Arizona State under uh, Professor Paul Carice's uh, leadership. Um, go down and visit the Hamilton Center at the University of, of Florida, or the new uh, Center for uh, American Civics at the University of Tennessee, uh, Knoxville. Um, we have shown that it can be done, and it has a real impact on real students in considerable numbers. So just look, join us, be part of this. Don't 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 be you know throwing your hands up in the air and saying the universities can't be reformed and they're no good and we're not going to have anything to do with the universities. Make a difference. You really can. And, and if you doubt me, as I say, come and visit me. I mean, Jonah Goldberg listeners, you have an open invitation. Come visit <laughs> us at the Madison program. We'll show you what's happening. Yeah, Jonah, I want to respond to what you said um, about small C conservatism. American conservatives at their best want to conserve the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And it's because we believe that those principles are right and true and good. We favor them, we support them, we want to advance them, we want to deepen our young people's understanding and appreciation of them, not just because they're ours, or even mainly because they're ours, but because they're good and true and, and right. They reflect the truth about the human being. We are created equal, endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. That is absolutely true. And it's really important that our young people understand that and um, uh, understand and are able to, to work out for themselves what the implications of, of that are for our civic life and for their lives as citizens. Uh, same with the principles of the Constitution. In a certain sense, then, American conservatives are old-fashioned Tocquevillian, Madisonian liberals. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing, we shouldn't get hung up on these labels. You know, uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe a person with your views or mine in a different time in a different place would not have counted as a conservative. That doesn't matter. 
I'm fine that we count as conservatives today. I embrace the label. That's fine. But I want to be clear on what our conservatism conservatism is. It's not the blood and soil or thrown and altar conservatism of old Europe. That's not us. If that's what conservatism is, that's not us. We are American conservatives. We do believe in the principles of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and we're going to conserve them. But let's also acknowledge something else. As Jefferson did, where do these principles come from? Were they new? In 1776, did our founding fathers dream them up? Well, the question was put by Henry Lee to Thomas Jefferson, and I believe it was May of 1826, just a couple of months before Jefferson died. On July 4th, 50th anniversary of the Declaration, same day as uh, John Adams died. But Lee wrote to Jefferson and said, where did you get these wonderful principles? And Jefferson responded, and he's right about this. Jefferson responded by saying, there's nothing new here. These are not new principles. I was just setting forth the common sense of the American people as formed by the great books of what he called political right. Uh, political justice, uh, political morality, we might say. And then he gave a non-exhaustive list of what those influences are. And they, they did include Enlightenment thinkers like Locke and Sidney, but he also included thinkers going all the way back into antiquity like Cicero and Aristotle. I mean, the truth of the matter is the American ideas that we rightly defend are the fruit of streams coming in from Athens and Jerusalem and Rome. They are not new in that sense. They, they're, they're, they're given uh, an institutional expression that I think is quite new. Uh, they were integrated into and became the foundational supports for a successful experiment in Republican government. And that is new because previous republics had all failed. And when they failed, they not only failed, they failed into the worst forms of of, of tyranny. But still, as Jefferson acknowledged, those streams were feeding the American uh, founding and informed those principles that we today, as American conservatives, are conserving. All right. So you set me up for my last question because I know we're over time. Um, but several of our colleagues at AEI um, and several of our intellectual friends or whatever, uh, beyond that, they all seem to be writing books or working on projects related to what is Republicanism. And I've had to do some seminars at AI where we've hashed around, you know, what do the founders mean by Republicanism? You have politicians love, a certain breed of conservative politician loves to say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. You can never get much more out of them about what they mean, about the difference between the two. So it, when a student asks you, what, you know, What's the difference between a democracy and a republic? What is a republic as, as, as informed by the views of the founders? What's your answer? I've been asking everybody who has any expertise on this question their own answer for it. And so it's your turn. Well, remember Lincoln, uh, remember Lincoln at Gettysburg uh, talked about the importance of the war and success in the Civil War, the success of the Union cause in preserving government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Lincoln observed that what's at stake here is not only the disappearance, if we fail, of that form of government from the North American landmass, but rather from the face of the earth. He felt if the American experiment in Republican government failed, then that would be the final lesson that people would draw 
about republicanism. It failed here just as it had failed everywhere else in the Renaissance, in the medieval period, in antiquity. Every time you try to republic, it failed. And we would just conclude, human beings would conclude that we, human beings, are not fit to be self-governing. We will always have to be governed by despots. We hope for benign despots, but uh, that's the best we can do because self-government doesn't work. It always collapses. It collapses into tyranny. Well, think about what Lincoln said. Government of the people. Well, all government is of the people. Government for the people. Well, all good government is government for the people, even the government of a benign despot. we, We consider the despot to be benign precisely because he's governing in the interest of the people, not just himself, not just his own family or tribe or clan or kin. He's governing in the interest of the people. What's Republican about Republican government, its government, is that it's government by the people. Now, there are different forms of government by the people. One form is democracy in the classic sense. And by the classic sense, I mean direct and unmediated democracy. So that all decisions are made by the people as a whole, uh, operating democratically. There are good reasons to think that's not a great idea, good historical reasons. Um, We mustn't think that just because we've got a democracy, everything's going to be fine and dandy. After all, it was Athenian democracy that murdered Socrates something that our founders were very cognizant uh, of. Democracies can descend very easily, very quickly into mob rule. We don't want that. So if that's what democracy is, we don't want that. So what are the forms of government by the people, not only of the people and for the people, but by the people that can actually work? Well, forms that build in structural constraints on power that protect against the descent into mob rule while at the same time ensuring that we don't uh, collapse into some kind of despotism for some other reason either. Um, So our founders opted for a kind of mixed regime. It's got democratic elements to be sure, most, most obviously in the form of the House of Representatives. It's a representative democracy, but it's, it's, it's a real democracy. And that's why people refer perfectly reasonably, in my view, to the House of Representatives as the people's house. Why wouldn't we say all government is the people's house? Why, why do we single out the House of Representatives? Because it's the element of our government that really reflects the democratic principle and spirit. The Senate, especially as originally conceived, was not democratic in that sense. The states owned the Senate. Uh, We shifted from state legislators sending senators to Washington to um, the direct election of senators uh, in the progressive uh, era by constitutional amendment. Whether that was a good idea or not would be a good subject for another broadcast or podcast, uh, (laughs) uh, Jonah. But it, it, it did, in a certain sense, democratize, for better or worse, the other house. The original idea was you want the more democratic uh, House of uh, Representatives to be balanced and checked by the, uh, the, the more aristocratic, if we can use that term, uh, uh, Senate. Uh, we also avoided, uh, decided not to, our founders decided not to have the direct election of the President of the United States, but rather to have an electoral 
college system. Obviously, that is not democratic. That's another element that's meant to be a check on an uh, unrestricted, direct, uh, unregulated uh, uh, democracy. So we're a republic in the sense that we are a government of and for the people, but also by the people but not one that could be described as democratic if we mean by democratic the the people acting as a whole get the last word immediately on everything. It's not how it works. We have structural constraints on power, limitations on power. We have our federal system, for example, so that power is divided between the national government as a government of delegated and enumerated and therefore limited powers. And the states as governments of general jurisdiction exercising plenary authority, what we call police powers to protect public health, safety, and morals. We have the separation of powers even within the national government. Uh, Legislative powers vested in the Congress, executive power in the President of the United States, judicial power in the the, uh, Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress shall from time to time ordain and establish. I'm quoting here, of course, from, from from Article 3. We don't have a parliamentary system where government is united in one institution, democratic government in one institution. It's those constitutional structural restraints on power that I think are what distinguish us from anything that our founders would have meant by democracy. Um, This is obviously a subject for uh, longer discussion, in part because I know several people are writing books on this question. But I mean, I, I, I obviously agree with everything you said. I think it's interesting to probe what the difference between democratic virtue and Republican virtue would be, because I think they are not the same thing necessarily, but it depends also kind of depends on who you ask and, and when you ask them, because I think the meaning of Republican virtue or Republicanism versus democracy or liberalism in the old sense has changed valences over time. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I think the, the democratic virtue would be you yield to the majority. Even if you're in the minority, if you lose, you lose. That's it. You yield. It takes a virtue to do that. You don't, it takes a virtue to not be tempted or to act on the temptation to overthrow the government because you lost. But Republican virtue can't be, I think, summed up that simply. Republican virtue is the virtue that enables us to respect and live with the limitations on the authority of the institutions. And that's a complex business. The, the, the House of Representatives has a certain authority, but it's limited. The Senate has a certain authority that it's limited. Presidents, I, I, I wish to remind presidents of both parties <laughs> that there are limits on their authority. Uh, this, this is one of the most scandalous things, I think, of the modern period of American life is that executive authority has expanded enormously beyond uh, its constitutional uh, constitutional balance. That's a failure of Republican virtue, Jonah. Presidents, and, and even my own beloved Ronald Reagan, were exercising, have been exercising power that hasn't been granted to them by the Constitution. Um, and that's a failure of virtue. The, the virtuous Republican leader respects the limit of his or her own authority. All right, with that, I got to let you go. Otherwise, I could keep you here all day. Uh, Professor Robert George uh, from Princeton University's Madison Center. Thank you so much for being on The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. My pleasure. Okay, so Robbie George has left the studio. And um, uh, I, I think close listeners of this podcast will understand uh, how um, 
simpatico uh, we are on a major, a lot of these major questions. I can't say I've been close friends of Robbie George for years or anything like that, but I've known the guy since, you know, the early 90s and have lots of friends who are friends of his. And the guy's a mensch and um, he's fighting good fights where and when he can from the inside. And I think this is, this is the point I was trying to get at about, you know, what the Madison Center and the centers like it are doing. I've spoken at a couple of them. I know the one in Arizona I spoke at. And I know people who've been to others. They're actually very academically rigorous things. And people who think they're going to be like these sort of conservative rah-rah sessions are going to be solely disappointed. They're very rigorous. They're very serious academic things. But what I find really encouraging and hopeful about them is these are important institutions. You know, this is a long, long-standing, long-running riff of mine about how I get the desire to create new institutions. I created a co-created a new institution with the dispatch, you know, and I think magazines and newspapers are a little different than other institutions. Um, you know, the average American conservative or liberal wants to send their kid to someplace that's famously good, like a Harvard or a Princeton or a university of Chicago. Um, in the same way that you can't create new old friends, you cannot create new old institutions. And the cons- and I, again, I've been writing about this for 30 years, the conservative obsession in certain quarters with creating alternative or parallel institutions so that you don't have to have anything to do with um, the mainstream media, with, with, with uh, elite universities and all these kinds of things um, is politically naive. And I'm not saying every new institution that's created is bad. Um, far from it. A lot of turn bad in part because the whole rationale for doing it, because it was based on a political fad and political peak, it didn't have the internal muscle memory to resist those things and stay true to the, 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 the mission. Anyway, it's a more complicated story than we're going to get into now. But um, what Robbie George and a lot of other people are doing with these centers is it's a way to get around the gatekeepers um, while at the same time sticking to the highest academic standards um, that these institutions purport to uphold. And they're, so they're little beachheads, not necessarily of ideological conservatism. I mean, I don't think Robert George is a huge fan of, you know, the Republican Party as constituted today. Um, certainly the people at some of these other institutions aren't. And he agrees with me about the sort of identitarianism that is spreading on the right. But what he's passionately committed to is protecting whether you want to call it the liberalism of America or the American project or the American experiment or small C conservatism, um, classical liberalism, whatever, preserving and, and defending those things on their own terms, regardless of how they break along partisan lines and getting people into these universities, getting people to be credentialed from these universities is very much sort of like the, the model, I mean, there are difference, important differences, but it's very much like the model of the Federalist Society. There's important and good work being done through the institutions that a lot of the radicals who just simply want to be bosses of, or celebrities um, based upon, you know, a lot of the sort of new institutions, you know, so they have an incentive to say, burn it all down, they're all corrupt, there's nothing to be done here. Those people are simply wrong, both as a matter of political analysis um, but also as, as describers of reality. There's a lot of progress being done out there in the real world. 
um, for, you know, conservatism. And I know I have a lot of liberal and left-wing listeners who aren't necessarily as gung-ho about some of that stuff as I am. And that's fine. I get that. But I think at this point, the liberal and left-wing listeners I have are still very much pro things like open and free debate, academic freedom, um, the principles of the, of, of, of the Bill of Rights and the founding of the Declaration, um, even if they have different views about, uh, you know, I don't know, industrial policy or, or, or tax rates or, or, or student loans, uh, all that kind of stuff. And they get it, right? It's that, you know, there's, there's something that gives me more common cause and affinity for a lot of left to center people who are procedurally, you know, classical liberals in terms of how they think debate and public questions should be settled than I am with a lot of right wingers who I might agree with about policy goals, but who think that the way to get to where you want to go is to smash everything in front of you and demonize anybody you disagree with. And um, anyway, I just thought that was worth getting out there. We got my, uh, my kid. My kid is now in Europe. She's doing a semester abroad. But someday I'll explain all the drama behind it. But uh, we got her out of here yesterday. We're very excited for her. I hope to visit her um, while she's over there. I will take under advisement whether I disclose where in Europe she is, but she's out there. Um, um, she's surfacing like Jason Bourne in various European capitals. Other than that, I want to thank everybody for, for indulging me on this one, and um, uh, particularly Robbie George. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 